All right, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. This is John Ramstead and Sandra Crawford Williamson, my co-host. We have an amazing guest on today, Dan Shaw Bell, don't we, Sandra? So excited that he's here! Oh my goodness! And this new book is amazing. You know, we've uh, we've we've interviewed a lot of folks, and you know, the topic of social media often comes up. But you know, what's cool? Dan is a New York Times bestselling author already. He's had two books, Promote Yourself and Me 2.0. He's Partner and Research Director at Future Workplace. He's the founder of Millennial Branding. He's the founder at WorkplaceTrends.com. He is a mover and a shaker. He was, you know, Forbes 30 Under 30, Inc. Magazine 30 Under 30. I, I mean, just serial entrepreneur, just got all this stuff going on. Amazing researcher, like his... You know, we we looked into him, and I got to know Dan. Um, just his ability to to spot trends is amazing, and so his new book comes out today. Woo! And it's going to be fantastic. It's called Back to Human: How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. And I love your approach, Dan. Welcome to the podcast. So happy to be here, John and Sandra. Let's rock. Absolutely. Well, you know, the book comes out today. I know it's been a labor of love for you. And, uh, you know, you promised to give us some great highlights today. So tell us a little bit about the book. Sure. So the idea came from an interview I did for a documentary called The Revolution Generation back uh, about a year and a half ago where I was asked for two and a half hours, Dan, what's the biggest challenge for your generation? And while I said, oh, student loans, I saw said world war, I said climate change, I kept going back to isolation. The overuse and misuse of technology has created the illusion of connection when in reality we feel more disconnected, less productive, less healthy, and less committed to our teams and organizations as a result of of constantly looking at our devices and trying to use technology as a crutch when communicating, when face-to-face and phone calls can be effective and more effective in many situations. You know, Dan, a friend of mine uh, said the other day, you know, the, this millennial generation, everybody says that they're tech savvy. He goes, I'd argue that they're actually not that tech savvy. They're actually tech dependent. And I, I'm just looking at my 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 kids that are uh, 20 and 19. They're constantly on their phone and working with organizations and companies from the from the military and the DOD to public companies that the the dis the uh, how about this? The the lack of humanness that is kind of bled out of our cultures and how we lead has really created some really unintended consequences. And really, that that's a big focus, actually, what you're trying to bring back, right? Bring the human back into just how we live every day, isn't it? Yeah, the message is not to remove technology from the equation because that's not going to happen, let's be honest. It's how and when to use it and not to overuse it. For instance, the easiest example is you use technology as simple as a Google Calendar and sending an invite to your team to make sure they show up in the same place at the same time. But when you're actually in that meeting, if you're still using technology, you're not present and therefore the meeting is not effective and everyone's wasting their time. You go to a networking event using, again, technology to make sure everyone's at that event, prepared, dressed in the right way, and with the right knowledge of what the event's going to be about. But once you are 
at that meeting or networking event, if you're looking down the whole time, how are you supposed to build the critical relationships you need in order to have a successful career? So, so how do we do that? How do we, you know, how do we move from being tech dependent to actually um, seeing technology as something that can actually facilitate better relationships? I think that that is the question. And throughout the book, I give various situations in which you should use the technology the right way in order to create more in-person relationships. If you look at my career going back, most of my original relationships were built over the Internet. I mean, I established a massive network uh, in my early 20s. But then I realized that my network was not very strong in a sense where my relationships were not deep because I only used text and email instead of phone calls and in person. And so I've, over the, over the past several years, I've had more uh, in-person relationships and, and meetings and meeting people in New York at coffee shops and for lunch and going to events. And, and it's much healthier when you do this and you can really figure out more of who the, the person is, what they're struggling with, what they're interested in. And without seeing that body language without, without seeing those emotions and, you know, how people feel about certain things, you can't really go very deep. And of course, if you have really deep relationships and strong friendships at work, you're more likely to stay at the company longer. That's what the research that I did for this book has proven with Virgin Pulse. We interviewed over 2000 managers, and employees in 10 countries, and we really lack work friendships. It's, it's kind of sad, actually. Uh, almost 10% of the global workforce has zero friends at work. And um, half of the global workforce has five or fewer. Yet we spend so much time at work. So much of our lives is spent doing work and responding to emails and working on projects. So the average work week in the United States is 47 hours a week. Um, but anytime I speak in front of a crowd, I ask how many of you answer business email on vacation and it's like 99% raise their hand. And the 1% right. that doesn't is either like asleep or they're not paying attention <laughs> or they're using technology <laughs> to do work. So, so absolutely the, we're working 24 seven. Of course there's, you know, some countries where there's a 35 hour work week, like, in, you know, in Italy and France, and then you have in Germany, where they're fighting for 28-hour work week. But in a sense, everyone's kind of always working. And if you're not answering email, work is happening in your head. You're thinking about it consciously. And so if you don't like the people you work with, you know, that paycheck is only going to be so great for so long. Eventually, you're just not going to have a strong connection with your team, with the company, uh, and, and you're going to leave. And so I, I really want to, you know, put a stake down with this book and, and make it like a call to arms. Hey, we have to really think about building stronger relationships because stronger relationships lead to more productivity and overall happiness. And since we work so many hours, you spend so much time at work. Um, if we have a bad work experience, what we found is that it will hurt your personal life. There's, you know, and I'm sure you could relate to it. If you, if you have a bad work experience, if your, you know, manager swears at you one day, when you come home to your wife or your children or even meeting up with a friend after work, that that uh, conversation will not be very good. You're going to take it out on them and that's going to hurt your personal life. Interesting. Yeah. You know, you said in the in the book uh, in the, uh, on this topic, right? Uh, Gallup surveyed, uh, I think, like five million people. Thirty percent actually have a, a close friend at work. The people that have a friend at work are seven times more engaged 
But and here's a question for you because this this was surprising to me. There was a actually this won't surprise you, but I was doing an offsite for the management team of a company and they had just really plateaued. They had some turnover problems. They'd been together on average, Dan, twelve years. This team. And somebody made a comment uh, during one of our, our sessions about her five kids. And one of the people in the room who'd been working with them for 12 years looked and said, what? I had no idea you had five kids. I was completely shocked. So here's a question for you, though. What, what has happened where developing friends and actually some authentic relationships at work has become the exception and not the norm? It's the amount, the sheer amount of time we spend at work. And I think people want to bring their full human into the workplace, their full personality and who they are. And that's more than just what you do at work. Uh, people don't want work to just define who they are. They, they're more than that. They're, you know, a, a person who has interests outside of work. Um, yet we found many, many times that, you know, workers are burned out right? People are working more hours, no additional pain, at least in, in the United States, and up to half of all turnovers because of burnout. Um, and so because people are suffering through that, that gives them a bad work experience and they end up leaving. And if you, and especially for people my age, we view our manager as our work parent and our teammates as our work family. And it's much harder to leave a strong family uh, and, and, and a parent, quote unquote, uh, than than a workforce where you're you really have weak relationships. So I think I think it's extremely important as we spend more time at work, and if we don't have these type of connections, um, that's a problem. And the other thing too, which I think is really interesting, is you know the workplace is becoming much more transparent. You know, this is the first mm -hmm. time compared to even ten years ago where people are more likely to talk about political issues at work. They're more you know, they're more open to talking about what their salary is to their colleagues because of, you know, pay, pay fairness. And so it's becoming much more open. And what I've noticed in terms of my peer group and in terms of like where I see people forming strong relationships, it's really about being genuinely open and talking about things that don't relate to work. You know, that's how you make a friendship. If you just talk about work, it's a work relationship. Once you talk about, you know, your family and, and things, you're, you're interested outside of work. That's why there's all these like special interest group at work. There's like the corporate, you know, soccer team and everything because they're trying to encourage stronger relationships that lead to better outcomes. That's why you see Amazon investing in like the, the Amazon rainforest at their headquarters in Seattle and why Apple is spending billions of dollars on a, a new, uh, a new headquarters for, you know, 14,000 employees because they want to create an atmosphere where people are connecting with each other. They're bumping into each other in the hallways. They're having those intimate conversations because that leads to better ideas and breakthroughs that will help the company innovate and be more successful. Absolutely. And, you know, you're, you're talking something near and dear to my heart because if we can have these personal relationships and be authentic in them, that also makes us better at our job because if we're authentic and vulnerable, people are going to follow us faster and, and be much more loyal. They're going to like working for us. They're going to feel like they're someone we can, you know, that they can trust. And so, you know, this research is, is great because it's so all encompassing. You know, one of the things that you've talked about is the assessment that people can take where you can start identifying who's likely to leave the company 
Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's called the Work Connectivity Index. It's a free self-assessment that you can take on at workconnectivityindex.com. And I partnered with a professor by the name of Kevin Rockman at uh, George Mason University, and he helped design it for me. And you take the assessment and you'll get a connectivity score. So if you have a high connectivity, it means you're getting a lot of FaceTime and you sit in close proximity to your you know, teammates and have really strong relationships. So you're doing a great job. But a lot of people, you'd be surprised, even extroverts that have taken it so far, even CEOs, have gotten low connectivity scores. And so it really helps you with self-awareness. Um, and you find that early in the book. And, the, and then the book will help you increase your connectivity score once you figure that out. Even if it's high, you can always improve. Uh, but it's really about self-awareness to figure out, oh, my God. You know, I'm spending, there's all, you know, there's like rescuetime.com. You can see how much time you're spending on all these social networks and all this technology. Uh, whereas you can cut down on that, even even if it's by a half hour or an hour, you know, incremental changes is, you know, what humans adjust to. And just to just have a self-awareness of where you are in terms of connectivity score, what you're spending slash wasting time on, because that's how, you're going to be able to free up time to spend more time, you know, on the phone or, you know, in meetings with your team. Yeah, our goodness forbid an actual face-to-face conversation with a human being, right? Yeah, especially <laughs> especially when times are tough. If you if you need to fire an employee or there's a critical situation, you know, two two employees are an argument, you can't solve that over text. And here's what's really fascinating you see in the book is that one face-to-face meeting is is uh, more successful than 34 emails back and forth. 34 that's awesome. Okay, so I'm, I'm writing going, that stat instead down. Going, <laughs> instead yeah. of going back and forth and back and forth, you just walk over to the person and say, hey, did you get my first email or can we have a, a more intimate conversation and really talk this out? You know, it's so funny because I see that with my husband. He'd rather text me back and forth during the day to, you know, make dinner plans or who's picking up the kids or what do we need from the grocery store. And it kills me. And so I'll just I'll just call him and say, hey, just talk to me for 30 seconds and we can prevent 10 minutes of texting back and forth. So, you know, everything you talk about in the book and in the survey and on the website, it, it, it's not just about work. It's about parenting. It's about, you know, if you're dating, you know, I didn't get married till I was 36. If you're in a, you know, if you're in the dating world right now, go look at this stuff. This will make you a better communicator to find dates and to go on dates and to, you know, possibly get a second date. Uh, it's great for parents. You know, John and I both have um, teenagers who have this appendage that is in their hand all the time. And, you know, we have a lot of rules in our home now, because I have a young teenager, she's just turned 13. Um, You know, I don't uh, allow the mobile devices to go up the stairs. So it's not allowed up in the playroom or in her bedroom. She's got to stay down in the family area with it. Um, And I, and I, that sounds drastic, but I did that because literally I feel like these kids today, they're just disappearing into the device and, you know, there are studies now, I'm sure you're well aware of, where the brains, young brains are actually being rerouted. Some of the synapses are, are changing uh, because they're staring at this thing, you know, 18 inches from their face on this little bitty screen. Um, and so their brains are actually, you know, adjusting to it. And let's be clear, that is not a good thing. 
So we've got to, we've got to, as, as humans and as adults, put down the devices, but we also have this generation that we are responsible for raising. And we have to, even, even through hardcore, uh, you know, rules, we have to make sure that they are looking people in the eye and shaking their hands and having a conversation back and forth. Because if they're not doing it now at, you know, seven and nine and 13, um, they're going to be in trouble soon. Yeah, and there's actually a study that I saw about a, f- a few months ago that that found that so if an average Facebook user has 150 friends, only like three or four would come to to their rescue in case of an emergency. So we have an illusion that we have all these friends because Facebook redefined what it means to be a friend. Yet it's deceiving because they aren't actual friends. I think a real friend is you go to the hospital, this person is visiting you or at least calling you to make sure you're okay. Wow. That's, that's, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Um, because you know, some of those are, so it's cursory, you know, uh, they're not really friendships and, you know, in the books, you know, your book title is back to human, right? It's about actually, how do we actually, you know, create or recreate some extraordinary leadership, and and Dan, I know you you uh, uh, you've done a lot of work um, in preparation for this book with Virgin Pulse and Future Workplace, and you were sharing before we got started some really interesting um, insights, information, intelligence has come out of that. If you if you're open, I'd love for you to you know share some of the things that really jumped out at you from that research. There's two really big things. The first one has been real. I mean, it's the most fascinating thing in the book, in my opinion, is if you work remote, you're much less likely to want a long term career at your company. Really? And so what's re- what's interesting about this from the re- Virgin Pulse study is that many, many years ago, let's say three or four years ago, I did multiple studies that found that the number one reason why people want to be freelancers, it's for the freedom and flexibility. They can work when and where they want, right? Now, everyone always talks about the pros. They talk about all the benefits from working from home. I've worked from home for eight years, right? You get freedom and flexibility, you save on commuting costs, but there is a dark side that people don't talk about that I exposed in this book and through this research that if you work from home, you're less engaged. So a third of the global workforce works remote, yet two thirds are disengaged. Why? Is because you're not getting face-to-face communication. You become lonelier and more isolated. Um, and so that is a big drawback to working from home that does not get discussed in the media or even among remote workers. Yet it is the underlying pain that we all go through. And so how do you get, so the, the, the uh, question is, what do you do about it, right? And so for me, what I've done is I've used the technology to meet more people face-to-face, right, in email or text or something, to just get out. So I have to, because I don't have to go to an office every day, it's on me and I have to be accountable to make sure that I get FaceTime, to make sure I go to events and, and meet people and network. So you need, you need to put pressure on yourself. And then I think it's, it's complicated to manage a remote team. If you, all of your teammates are working remote, which is, you know, becoming more more uh, yeah, frequent that's, now. That's my entire team, Dan. We're 100% yeah. remote except for my, my wife who, who, of course, lives here. But that's it. It's about what do you do? And, and I think video conferencing, I think having one or two offsites in a given year, what we found is only 20% of companies have an offsite, yet the best way to create a social environment for employees is an offsite. 
which is ironic. Like EMC, I remember huh. yeah. both worked there. There was offsites. I mean, literally, you'd go and they'd have, you know, like almost like a big festival. And then Joe Tucci at the time, the CEO, would give a big talk. And we used and to go so, to Vegas that, every year for our kickoff. It was pretty, pretty epic back in the day. Yeah, and then and then EMC World, and you know, I was doing all the social media for that back in the day. And and so I think it's so important. And you know, it doesn't even have to cost a lot of money. You could just take everyone to a restaurant or or to just do some team building activities. It's got to be something, though, if people work remote to keep them feeling like they're part of something bigger than them and that they have work relationships for, with people that they can count on. Um, if you don't see or hear somebody for a long period of time, you don't feel like you're part of that anymore, even if you're doing the work. So if there's another opportunity that makes more sense for you with people who, where you would be engaged more often, you're going to take it. So that's that's the first really, really big outcome from the book that, yeah, that yeah. I definitely want to start a conversation about. Hey, question for you, Dan. I, I know a lot of people, business owners, are kind of struggling with um, not maybe remote workers, but maybe letting their workers telecommute one to you know, a certain number of days per week, per month. Is there a balance there that creates the connection, the engagement, but also maybe can increase, increase productivity. Do you have any thoughts on that? Love that. That's a great follow-up question. And here's what I would say. We always think in the workplace of extremes. Yeah. Let's work from home the, the whole time. Let's, you know, be at a corporate office full time. I think it's based on this. I think it's based on the individual and their needs and the organization and their needs. And you come together and you say, okay, this is what's acceptable, right? Because, you know, Someone could be single. Someone could have two kids who are, you know, two years old. You know, we're all in these different situations, life situations, and and someone could be older or younger. And so we have to figure out what works for an individual, and have a nice balance of maybe flexible hours. They can come into work at ten o'clock, but leave at seven or eight o'clock, and then flexible schedules. You can work remote one or two days a week potentially, but let's not think of extremes. Like if you have a company with thousands of people, hey, like let's say everyone work remote. Actually, Aetna, I think it's over half the company works remote full time and it seems to be working for them, but I don't know what their retention rate is. They haven't exposed that, right? Mm. But I, I think I think the key is it should be based on corporate and individual needs and people coming together, but I'm trying to raise general awareness that there is a downside to working remote. It has people have to account for it. Organizations need to, and individuals need to, for their own health and happiness, and for the organization's ability to engage their workforce. Well, I think that that's a great answer, right? You need to really look at it individually and see if it works, and look and look at your people. But it gets back to right, uh, actually having some conversations and knowing you know, the, the people that you're working with, knowing their situations, uh, like you said, it's getting back to know, knowing each other at the human level of friendship, knowing about our families and what's going on and kids and health situations. And it seems to me in a, in a lot of organizations, that human aspect is, is lacking. Exactly. Because people don't either don't feel comfortable about it. They think it's unnecessary. They think it could hurt their career. Yet it forms it's that communication that forms the bonds that create a long career, create more connection to the company and loyalty. And obviously, as you know, it's not it's not like young people are job hopping more than than, you know, Gen X did at their age. That was proven false. But oh, is that true? Uh, I didn't realize that. That's, but, that's... but overall, overall loyalty has declined slightly over the years. Um, and there's in the amount of pay increase, there was just actually a, an article about 
the amount of pay increase you can get for switching is is the highest in several years. Uh, I think it's over 20%. So there's incentives now to switch companies. So the the other thing I wanted to get to, too, like going on to what you were saying, is the other big finding is that the biggest thing that gets in the way of face-to-face communication is email. And that's what we found. And, And because people rely on email so much, they wake up and they keep sending emails, uh, that that is, has become the ultimate crutch uh, that people are using to communicate, yet in many ways it can be very uh, ineffective, right? And go against what you're trying to do and create even more problems, especially, you know, you've heard all these stories about like replying all and like people seeing an email or being forwarded an email that they maybe shouldn't and that creating conflict and, and gossip and, and that can be eliminated. So it's, I think it really comes down to this. I think you, you know, think, you know, you're in a scenario and you're like, okay, you know, there's an argument between two employees, you know, instead of sending an email, you know, maybe you sit down with one and then the other, you know, in person and try and work things out. Maybe you work it out as, as kind of like a group, but that shouldn't be done through email. Uh, but maybe an email update to the whole team saying, hey, you know, here's where we are with this product launch and here's a breakdown of, you know, who's responsible for what through an email could be valuable. Right. But then if you're trying to schedule a meeting, use, you know, there's these conference booking software. That's great. There's artificial intelligence that sets up meetings now. So a lot of that, those tasks are going to be eliminated from people's day to day and use the technology in that way to get people to a specific place, but then let the real communication happen. So people are present uh, and not looking down. I mean, what's really fascinating living in New York is this 1.6 million people in New York City and 8.6 in the greater New York area. So you feel like you're around so many people. Yet when you're in the subway, you, it feels like there's a lot of people, yet you're around no one in a way. They're all yeah. there, but they're no, no one's there at the same time, which I think is so fascinating. It's actually the first slide in my keynote. It's this, this uh, one guy sitting without a technology device and everyone next to him is looking down at a, a technology device. So he's there. He's with them. But really, no one's there at the same time. I think it's so, so interesting that we can and be around from my, people and, and yet and, no and you, and it actually makes me feel even more isolated if they're there and not talking to me than if I was just sitting by myself, you know, because if I'm sitting by myself, I'm choosing to be alone. I'm, you know, sitting with other people. I'm looking for some engagement and yet they're choosing the device over me. That's what I tell, you know, my children and the people I'm coaching and when I do my speaking stuff and talk about technology. If you're sitting with another human being and you're choosing to look at your device rather than them, that's going to hurt them on some level because you're, you're literally choosing this piece of machinery over them. And, you know, what you're talking about is, is employers can really use this because if you can pull an employee in and know, I call it knowing their story, right? Know their story. What's their background? What makes them tick? What's going on for them? It makes them loyal. So you're going to reduce turnover. You're going to increase loyalty. They're going to work harder for you. Um, and if you're an employee, here's a way to think about it. Um, robots aren't really given a lot of grace, right? If a robot messes up, like you're done, you're, you're either thrown away or you're reprogrammed. So don't be a robot to your boss, to your employer, to your company, be a human, like let them know your humanness. Let them, you you know, it's really interesting. You'll, you'll love this quote. So there's the education, uh, secretary in, uh, Singapore said, if you work like a robot, you'll be replaced by a robot. Oh, 
Oh my gosh, that is. And a lot of a lot of this, a lot of this, you know, looking down at your device is happening subconsciously. You're not even like thinking about it. It's not like I'm like, oh, I want to ignore that person. Right. It's just like the de facto of what you do. You just, it's just happening. You know what I mean? And well, so well, that's I, I tell part you, of this yeah. is raising awareness. Yeah. It's the path of least resistance It's easier for me to stare down at something that's not going to talk back at me than it is for me to look up and actually make eye contact with a person and ask some questions and get to know them and go back and forth. Right. Um, and, and I think it, at the point where that becomes easier and more fulfilling, to look at your device rather than look up and make human contact, that's the, that's the tipping point. And we have to be extremely aware of that. So that's what I love about, you know, your books and the survey and your talks is that it really raises the awareness so that we can start, start breaking some of those habits because you're right. It's not like, Oh, I don't want to talk to him. I'm going to stare at my phone. Maybe sometimes, but often it's just a, it's just a path of least resistance. I also find that today we're not good at, at um, just being, you know, 20 years ago, you read a book or, you know, you meditated or you took a nap. Uh, we don't have any of those uh, habits now in this new generation to refresh themselves. Uh, and so I think that's why we have so much burnout. That's why people are so frustrated and angry because they're not having the downtime to replenish because in those normal times where they would do that, they're staring at a phone and still working or reading news and being stressed out or, you know, something. So they're not having those chill moments. And that even happens on vacation. Not having your, your phone is the new vacation. Amen, Dan. I, <laughs> I got to, back when I was at EMC and I was uh, an area manager, Dan, I went on vacation and I was on my phone to my, my family chagrin through about Thursday afternoon. I think I finally was able to actually, mostly because I was not leading very well, just to be frank with you. But I want to circle back to something you said about one face-to-face meeting takes the place of 34 emails. Um, when You know what? How we receive communication face-to-face, there's kind of three parts of it. The words that we hear, like if you and I were you know, meeting for coffee in New York City, you, the tone of voice that you're using in your body language, and our, the body language is 55% of what we receive. Tone of voice is about 38%. Only 7% is words. So Think about a word, a text, or an email. It is our human nature to read in intent, motive, motivation, body language, tone into that, which can create a tremendous amount of conflict. And I always tell people when an email comes in and you're reading some of that in and you want to respond or maybe react to an email, the best thing you can do is walk down to that person's cube or their office or pick up the phone and actually have a conversation. And I think we could probably eliminate 80 or 90% of the, the conflict and misunderstandings that happens with just people actually making some different choices how they interact with people. For sure. And another thing that I was going to talk about for vacation, there was a study that came out which I thought was really interesting by the American Psychological Association that found that 24% of workers said the positive effects of vacation time, such as more energy and feeling less stress, disappear immediately on returning to work. Oh, I completely agree with that. Hey, now, when before we got started, uh, and this is a, a chapter in your book that I think it's absolutely phenomenal on leading with empathy because – 
Um, what I think uh, a lot of Gen Xers and baby boomers, uh, when they're working with millennials, which have just absolutely untapped and immense talent, it's not really about changing maybe our principles and who we are, but may, are changing our approach and how we're doing some of the things that we're doing. And, I, and I'd love for you, you shared uh, some story about some, you know, a couple different CEOs at Microsoft and some other stories that really highlight some things around leading with empathy, which I think would be fantastic for our audience to hear. Yeah, so I interviewed a girl for the book. I interviewed 100 young top leaders at 100 of the best companies in the world, like GE and IBM, some of our clients, and but also you know, Equinox, Chipotle, uh, you know, Honeywell, Johnson Johnson, many, many. And the, the girl Rashida Hodge from IBM shared a really cool story about how she had to relocate for her job from North Carolina to New York. And obviously living in New York is really expensive. So her manager really wanted to work with her. Clearly they, you know, she, you know, he recruited her internally and you know, the cost of living is high. So she couldn't afford, she was stressed out. And you know, if you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you need like, you know, safety and food and and love and, and support if you want to be self-actualized, if you want to do your best and fulfill, you know, your potential. And so he took her in like uh, she was his daughter and provided for her and supported her uh, so that she could do her best work. And, you know, most people say people of my age leave after every two years. She's been with IBM for over a decade. She even has a VP title as a millennial, which is substantial. Uh and she's a rock star. And so that really helped her having someone who would support her knowing what her needs were and being able to empathize with that. And the other thing is in terms of leadership styles like you're getting at, you know, there's a leadership style between Steve Ballmer and Sadia Nadella, the current and former CEO of Microsoft. Steve Ballmer would go around the office and yell at employees making saying that they weren't doing something right. And so that's more of the autocratic leader. The you know, in many ways, like the baby boomer leader, where it's all about command and control, following policies and procedures, which is not very effective for people my age. And then you have Sadia Nadella that learned empathy because his child had, you know, severe, severe problems and was in a wheelchair. And so he learned to empathize because of having a child like that and watching what his wife went through trying to take care of, take care of him. And so now empathy is embedded in who he is, as well as the products and products of Microsoft. And so for him, he would go around the office as a transfer, transformational leader and just ask a lot of questions, try and be helpful and try and rally people around their mission. And that's what I find to be more most effective now is more of a lighter leader, like not not like someone who's very tough, like Bomber or even Steve Jobs, but somebody who is open and willing to listen to people regardless of their age and gender, et cetera. And so I think the future companies are going to be built by people who are more transformative, who see the bigger vision, but who also have empathy and can treat people with respect and as adults. Yeah, and uh, Dan, at the end of each chapter, you have key takeaways, and they're just so practical. And I just want to read the three just from this chapter of you know um, leading with empathy because you just highlighted some of them, and these are three things that you know any leader out there listening right now can do. You can start doing this as soon as you hear this interview. But the first one is just being more vulnerable in your team conversations, just being more human, getting to know who they are. The other one is being fully present. 
right? Putting away your phone, turning towards somebody, making eye contact, making a choice to actually listen. And the other one you say here is put others first. And um, what do you think the importance is, you think, in, in today's organizations of of putting other people's first and maybe even putting their agenda ahead of your own agenda? Yeah, ego a lot of the times gets in the way of people being able to empathize and support their team. Yet, if you drop your ego and you start listening to other people's ideas and incorporate them in your meetings and decision making, they'll feel more engaged. You'll hold on to them longer. They'll produce for you and you'll end up getting a promotion and being being able to, you know, be more successful in your own career. So in a sense, the pro the you know, the the product of helping others leads to your success. Now, um, you had mentioned or a question I wanted to ask you from your perspective, uh, Dan, uh, as a millennial, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, um, what, you know, with technology continuing to expand uh, and be more uh, utilized, what is it, what do you think it takes in your opinion to really become uh, an effective leader today and then also maybe looking forward a little bit? To be effective leader today, you have to be able to adapt to new environments and put yourself in the shoes of the people who work for you and not just think about your career, but how you can support other people's careers so that they want to stay with you longer. They have room for growth and so they feel empowered so they can make a difference uh, as long as it aligns to you know your mission and what you're looking to achieve as well. And then just to be very authentic and transparent in your ways so that people have the information they need when they need it so they can evolve and and uh, be able to adjust with the changes in the economy because the average the average relevancy of a skill is only five years. So people have to constantly reinvent themselves. And you your job as a leader to is to enable them to do that and support support their careers, not just your own. Uh, and I think in the future. It's really going to be about being able to work side by side with robots. To be honest, as as funky as the sound, I did a study with I did a study with Oracle, which was really fascinating. Uh, we interviewed employees and leaders, and what we found is that over ninety percent of workers overall would take orders from a robot. Um, and so, what we're seeing now is this big shift in the workplace of more artificial intelligence, more robotics. And if you want to be a leader, you're going to have to figure out how to work side by side with them, how to use the best of that technology to make your life easier, to get rid of a lot of the routine tasks. And as a leader to, you know, use more empathy, to be more authentic, to support others, to, you know, to uh, kind of lead the pack and have have that great, that great mission because all that other stuff that you might've done as a leader is going to be automated. You know, um, leading with empathy is something John and I are passionate about, uh, John had a terrible accident, was in a hospital two years recovering. Doctors told him he'd never work again and his wife would have to care for him the rest of his life. Uh, almost three years ago, I had a golf ball-sized mass and had terrible surgery and months and months and months of recovery. And I tell people all the time that I, I really have no doubt that part of the reason the Lord put me through that experience was because it prepared me to be ready to take care of my parents. You know, my parents are aging and, you know, getting to have health problems and that sort of thing. And before my surgery, I would have never been prepared for that. But the empathy that that gave me 
um, I'm using every single day, whether it's in the Starbucks drive through or with people I'm coaching or with people I'm leading in projects. And I know John feels the same way. So leading with empathy takes interpersonal communication. You're not going to get a lot of that by acting like a robot. And I love the quote that you've taught me today. If you're going to act like a robot, you'll be replaced by a robot. So I think we should leave it there because that is the, you know, a great reason to look up from our devices and make better choices. And and I love something you also said, you know, use technology, but use technology to connect with people in a real way. And then once you're connected with them, put the device away. So, you know, thanks so much for being with us today. This was just fantastic and everybody run out there and get this book so dan tell us just one last time uh what's the best way for them to get the book and to connect with you yeah so the book is called back to human you can get it at a bookstore on amazon barnes and nobles or or an indie bookstore and then you can listen to my podcast five questions with dan shabell where i interview the most successful people in the world by asking them five questions in under now 10 minutes uh, which is exciting. And for more information on my research articles, just about everything I'm working on, you can go to danshawbell.com. That's S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L.com and follow me on Instagram where I'm posting you know, insights, quotes, and, and uh, interviews with people. Awesome, Dan. Thank you for your time. Such a great and uh, timely subject. Um, the, the book is not only just research-based, but just... Uh, I love the practical takeaways in each section. And this is something somebody can keep on their desk. And when they come across, you know, different things that are just happening in the world, uh, it's like a, you can just go back and just reread a, a, a chapter, or pull a couple of key things out of a section that you can use immediately to go work with your team or a person, both at home, at work. So uh, thanks for all the hard work and time you put into this. It's just a fantastic book. And thanks for, for everything else you're doing, my friend. It's been great to get to know you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, having me on your show. And best of luck with everything. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy.